family. This last week, we were part of uh, Festival of Thought, which is part of uh, ARZM, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And what I like about ARZM, they have this motto, this slogan, helping believers to think and also helping thinkers to believe. So this morning, it's a spoil for us. We have one of the speakers who have been with the uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries for a number of years now, Dr. Amy Ewing. She's the director of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and the Europe, Middle East, and Africa director of Arzum. She leads a team of pioneering apologists and evangelists and speaks around the world on how Christian faith answers the deepest questions that we have. Amy is married to Frog, and they have three children. By the way, if you didn't know, Frog's mom is from South Africa, so this is Amy's second home. Amy is back at home. If you wanted to know uh, what is, uh, why the nickname Frog, Amy will explain sometime when she comes back again, we hope. Friends, let's take time and give Amy a warm South African welcome. Thank you for that amazing welcome. It is truly wonderful to be here this week with you. And um, we only see the sun about four times a year where I live. So it's been a special treat to go outside and see that big yellow ball in the sky. So thanks for that. And um, uh, as was just said, we've been part of a week here happening in South Africa called Festival of Thought, where we've been encouraging people to consider the deepest questions of life And whether Jesus has an answer for those questions, we've been doing that in universities, here at WITS, down in UCT and Stellenbosch University as well, and in multiple businesses as well as churches. Um, So it's been an absolute joy to be here this week. And this morning, we're going to spend some time thinking about one of those questions, one of those questions about meaning and purpose in life and considering whether Christian faith has something to say to that question. So we're going to be thinking about this question of happiness. What do you think will make you happy? What do people out there think is going to make them happy? And what do you think will make you happy? Well, the story is told of a woman who was walking on a beach, and she stumbled on a genie's lamp, so it's obviously a true story. She picked it up and she rubbed it and the genie popped out and the amazed woman said, oh, am I going to get three wishes? The genie said, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, low wages and fierce global competition, you can only have one wish, so make it good. The woman didn't hesitate. She reached into her handbag and produced a map of the world. She pointed to the Middle East and she said, see these countries, I want them to stop fighting each other. The genie looked at the map and said, listen, lady, those countries have been at war for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. It can't be done. Make another wish. So she thought for a moment and she said, you know, I've never been able to find quite the right partner, one that's considerate and fun, likes to cook and helps with the cleaning, is attractive and gets on with my mother, doesn't watch sports all the time and is faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect partner. The genie let out a long sigh and said, okay, give me the map back. (laughs) What do you want? What is going to make you happy? What do you want? 
Now, at the beginning of John's gospel, there's this extraordinary introduction to who God is and how God relates with this world. We're told that the universe was brought into existence by the Logos, and the Logos was with God and then came and took flesh and came and dwelt among us. And then as John's gospel unfolds in chapter one, we're pointed towards this person called Jesus of Nazareth. And we kind of got this rising sense of anticipation about who this person might be. And then this person, Jesus of Nazareth, speaks for the first time in the gospel. And when he speaks, he, he asks a question. The first time he speaks in John's gospel, and here's the question. He says, what do you want? What do you want? He lays his finger, if you like, on that question that is deeply within every human being. What is it that is going to satisfy that ache in every human heart? Now, in our world, we're constantly being sold paths, routes, to happiness, ways that that ache within us might be satisfied, might be met. And probably the most powerful one um, out there in our world is this idea that if only you could have more stuff, more wealth, more money, that would make you happy. But here's the question. Where does the evidence lead us? Does the evidence support the idea that acquiring more wealth, more stuff, more material things will actually make you happy? Well, listen to what Oliver James in his book, Affluenza, noticed. What he found is that when human beings center our lives on money, possessions, and personal experience, we actually suffer increased levels of depression, anxiety, and relationship breakdown. He found that the more materialistic we are, the less loyal, helpful, and joyful we become. Affluenza, he wrote, is a virus-like condition that spreads through countries. In these countries, notably English-speaking ones, people begin to define themselves by how much money they make. And they become ruled by other superficial values like how attractive they look, how famous they are, and how much they're able to show off. And he quotes the sociologist Eric Fromm, who says, we've moved from a state of being to a state of having. Oliver James goes on to explore um, this book by a guy called Vance Packard, who wrote this book on advertising in the 1950s. And it was called The Hidden Persuaders. And he was looking at the job of advertisers in society. And as we enter contexts where people begin to have what they need, the job of advertisers is to create false needs. Packard wrote this book in the 1950s. And then Oliver James explores the fallout of 60 years of creating false needs. And what he notices is that the fallout gets worse with each successive generation. The more materialistic we become, the more anxious and depressed. And he says this, in the past, people wanted things because they were useful. Later, they wanted them to enhance their status. And now they want them because without them, they feel ugly and alone. What do you want, Jesus asks, opening up 
to our view, this ache within every human heart. Many out there in the world will tell you the answer to satisfying that ache is materialism, acquiring more wealth. But as Oliver James shows, the research doesn't support that idea that making more money and wanting more stuff will actually make you happier. When Marcus Person, creator of Minecraft, sold his company to Microsoft for £2.5 billion in 2014, it didn't give him the great boost of happiness you might expect. His tweet in August 2015 says this, I'm hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Or listen to what um, the billionaire John Caldwell, the founder of Phones for You, admitted on the BBC. He said there are times when he would put his happiness level at just a one or a two out of ten. So what do you want, Jesus asks. And out there, there are all of these options to answer that question. But Jesus Christ, who asked, what do you want, went on to claim to be able to satisfy the longing of every human heart. In chapter 6 of John's Gospel, having asked, what do you want, in chapter 1, in chapter 6, he says this. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Could it be that this poor son of an unmarried first century mother who lived in a tiny nation that was under occupation by an empire in the Middle East, could it be that this person is able to answer this massive question for every person in the world? Could it be that Jesus Christ's claim, I am the bread of life, is the answer to the longing of our hearts, even today in 21st century Johannesburg? That's the critical question. You see, it might sound nice. It might even sound quite clever. But here's the question. Is it true? Can Jesus do this? Or is it going to be just like any other thing we're peddled and sold that's going to make us happy? That latest face cream or the latest pair of shoes or the latest football boots or whatever it is, the latest car that we think, if only I had that, that will make me happy. And is, it, if, is Jesus' claim true on more than one dimension? Is it true on more than one level? Is it true that there is substance to him? Is it true that he is actually God with us in human history? And not only is it true in that sense that it's, it's reasonable or verifiable or rational or substantial, but is it actually true for me in my life day by day? So we're going to explore these two dimensions together. Is there truth in him? And does that truth in him connect with truth in me? 
Now, truth claims are um, interesting things, aren't they? And today in our world, with the rise of post-truth and um, all the crazy uh, scenarios on Facebook and on the internet, uh, amazing things happening and Donald Trump ends up in the White House and this is the world we're living in where people are grappling with, with truth. In December 2017, a leading newspaper known for its investigative journalism, The Independent in Britain, ran this headline. The Shed at Dulwich was London's top-rated restaurant. Just one problem, it didn't exist. The story went like this. There was a writer called Ubar Butler, and he used his home in London, in a place called Dulwich within London, and his shed at the bottom of his garden a website and a burner phone to create a concept restaurant, and he got it verified on TripAdvisor. He created a, a web page with a menu that was inspired by moods. He said he was aiming at a concept that was silly enough to infuriate your dad. So picture your dad and the kind of restaurant that would really annoy him, and that's what he was aiming at. And then he illustrated it with photographs of very artsy-looking plates of food, except none of the plates actually involved any food. He made them all with household products, like one thing was a scallop, pretending to be a scallop, and it was actually a bleach laundry tablet, and drizzles of other kind of household products all over it, shaving cream, the whole lot. Within weeks, the fake restaurant began to climb up the rankings on TripAdvisor as Butler and his friends wrote fake reviews. And then other people started writing reviews. After the restaurant was ranked 30th, reservation inquiries started coming in from all over the world. Hollywood superstars, um, members of the Saudi royal family ringing up trying to get a table at the shed at Dulwich. He said, this writer said, people started even coming to the physical road that his house was on and walking up and down the street asking his neighbours, do you know how to get into this hot restaurant? I really want a table at this restaurant. The next thing that happened was that he received a note from TripAdvisor and he was expecting to be really told off that they had found out that he was faking it. But instead, the company told him that the listing, his restaurant had received 89,000 views in a single day. The shed at Dulwich had ascended to the number one restaurant ranking on TripAdvisor in all of London. The only problem being it didn't exist. Truth matters. Truth matters. You see, when we think about truth in abstract terms, perhaps it doesn't seem that important. We might think about some kind of political argument. Is it true that a particular government minister um, told stories to a newspaper about the president or the prime minister? And, you know, it may or may not be true. There's lots of speculation against about it, but we don't really care whether it happened or not. But in the personal realm, things are much more highly charged. Is it true that your girlfriend cheated on you last night? Is it true that the person you thought was your father is actually your father? Those are not matters to be just kind of shrugged off with a shrug of the shoulder and a sort of breezy, you know, everyone's truth is equally valid. Truth is an essential question. It does matter. Now, of course, some things are just a matter of preference. Do you prefer chocolate or vanilla? But other things are a matter of fact. You're climbing a mountain. 
Will the rope hold? Yes or no? Truth matters. And Jesus Christ claims that his radical statement, I am the bread of life, I have the ability not only to diagnose the ache in every human heart, but to answer it, to fill it. But that claim is rooted in truth about him. You see, at the beginning of his gospel, John introduces us to the Logos. God is the Logos, the word who is there at the beginning. Now, that Greek word Logos is the word from which we get logic. But it already had a meaning in the Greco-Roman world. The Stoics understood Logos to be a rational principle behind the universe. So it kind of encapsulated thought, reason, even science itself. Logos was also used to describe speech, so words that you might speak. So it also represented all communication and relationship. And it was also the principle behind the material, the physical world that you and I live in. And here, John takes this word, logos, that people already knew. Science, reason, thought, language, relationship, the physical universe. And he says, all of that, all of that, that the logos means, the one behind all of that, entered history. And he's called Jesus of Nazareth. John claims that this Logos, through him, everything that has been made was made and that he has entered our world as a human being. It matters whether this is true or not. If Jesus is the foundation of truth and reality, we ought to expect him to have left an imprint on on the history of our world. We ought to expect there to be evidence that that is the case, that this is actually true and real. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is precisely the situation we find ourselves in. H.G. Wells, the great um, philosopher, said, Jesus Christ is the most dominant person in human history. Think about his origins. Son of a poor, unmarried woman in in an occupied country, tiny, insignificant place has become the most dominant person in human history. Many of Jesus' sayings, things that he said, have entered our cultures and our, our language without people knowing that Jesus was the original author of those statements, of those teachings. People don't know where these phrases come, but they were all originally uttered by Jesus. Phrases like the salt of the earth, love your neighbor, do unto others, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the blind leading the blind, judge not lest you be judged, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword, wolves in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink and be merry, the sign of the times, go the extra mile. These phrases with which you are familiar originating in that obscure historical person from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He's made an imprint on our world. And when we look at the source material about him, we discover that it is exceptionally robust. The city I live and work in, the city of Oxford, um, there's a library there at one of the colleges called Magdalen College. And um, I quite often take visiting students to, to visit 
um, that document's library there, we can see three fragments of Matthew's gospel, believed by most scholars to date from around 200 AD, very early fragments of the gospel of Matthew, showing us with, with, with beyond a shadow of a doubt that Matthew's gospel was written in the first century in the lifetime of the disciples of Jesus themselves. What this means is that these are reliable eyewitness statements, not legends written later or accumulated by later generations. The truth about Jesus is that he came in history and so his claims are founded in reality. That is reasonable, that is robust, that is historical, that is verifiable and it matters that this is actually true. But the truth about him isn't merely intellectual and historical. It's important that it is. But it is not merely historical or intellectual. Because the truth about him connects with truths about us. Christian faith is not primarily an intellectual position about ideas. If true, at its heart, there is an offer of a relationship with a personal God and a promise that ultimate meaning, purpose and satisfaction are found in meeting him. Meeting him is like eating the bread of life. We promise that we won't be hungry in that ultimate sense anymore. But is that really testable? Is it really true? Listen to the verdict of one of the leading atheist public intellectuals where I live, a journalist called Matthew Paris. He says this, Now as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He goes on, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package, but Christians black and white do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission school or hospital and say the world would be better without it. I would allow if faith is needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine, but what counted was the help, not the faith. But he says, this doesn't fit the facts. Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. The truth about him is evidenced in history. It's evidenced in philosophy. It's evidenced in people's lives. People meeting Jesus. But does this truth, this great truth about him and his promise to be able to be the bread of life and to satisfy the hunger of human hearts, does it connect with the truth about me? You see, if that truth about him is out there and it's evident and it looks good and it's shiny and it's attractive and perhaps it's it's rooted intellectually, but if it requires something of me that I'm incapable of giving... 
if it requires a standard of me or a level of me, then it's just going to be theoretical. It's just going to be something that I see but will never actually touch my life. And what's amazing about the Christian gospel is that those truths about him actually connect with the truth about me. You see, the truth about me is that I'm human and so I'm anxious, I'm fearful, and I need a deliverer. And I know that wealth, acquiring material things, will not be able to deal with that. It cannot help me with my anxiety or my fear. The story is told of a woman who couldn't sleep at night because she was worried that um, they were, they were going to be burgled. And it sort of got rather annoying for her husband as every time there was even the slightest creak in the house, she'd wake him up and go, make him go and have a look. So one day, um, her husband also heard the noise and they went downstairs to investigate. He went down to investigate. And when he got there, he got into his kitchen and he saw there was a burglar in there. And he, he, he immediately said, oh, please come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. <laughs> A real burglar or a thief can steal things from us, possessions from us. But fear, anxiety, worry steal from us day after day. And Jesus Christ addresses that truth about us, that we're afraid. And he doesn't just analyse our situation and say, here's the human condition, you guys live in fear. He claims that he can deal with our fear. In John's gospel, chapter 14, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, and I do not give as the world gives. The truth about me is that I'm fearful and anxious and I need a deliverer. The truth about him connects with that reality. Second truth about me is that I'm human and so I'm flawed, I'm broken and I need forgiveness. If this truth of eating the bread of life required me to be in some way morally perfect, then it's going to be completely hopeless for me. The story is told of a a little boy. I actually have three boys, um, twin 12-year-olds and a nine-year-old, and um, they began the campaign to get an Xbox in our house about five years ago. Um, And the campaign ranged with everything from negotiation to terrorism. (laughs) Every parent in the room will know what that means. And uh, the story is told of a similar boy with equally mean parents as me, and um, uh, those parents weren't, weren't, were holding out. They were not going to give him this desired Xbox. And so he was rather an entrepreneurial little guy. So he decided to um, try and do a deal with God. So one night um, he knelt down for his prayers and he said, God, here's the deal. I'm going to be good for a week. And in exchange, I get the Xbox. So the next day he woke up and his sister was annoying as usual. And they ended up having a little fight And he realized it's going to be quite hard, actually, to hold my end of the deal. So the next night, he got down on his knees and said, God, we need to renegotiate the terms of our agreement. Thing is that on your side, the deal is the same. The contract remains the same, Xbox. On my side, we're just going to nuance it a bit. We're making a few amendments. And it's not a week. It's just a day that I need to be good. 
So the next day, similar thing happened. He just couldn't hold it up. So that night, he thought, forget praying. And uh, he waited for everyone to go to sleep. The house was dark, and he, he crept out of the house and down the stairs and out of the front door and down the garden path, and he crossed the road. And he broke into the Catholic church across the road, and he, he stole a statue of Mary, hid it under his coat, crossed the road, back up the garden path, up the stairs, into his bedroom, and he put the statue under, under the duvet in his room, and he knelt down and he said, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, <laughs> Xbox... Some of you have that child. (laughs) The reality is we are all flawed. We're all that little boy. We think we can do it. We think, today I'll do it. I can be good. I can be unflawed. I can live that perfect life for a day. But there's not a single one of us who can. We're all that little boy. And guess what? The truth about him connects with that truth about you and me. Not just the truth that we're anxious, we're fearful, we need a deliverer, but the truth that we're flawed and we need a saviour, we need forgiveness. How does he do it? How does this one who is the logos, the rational principle behind the universe, the one who brought language and people and planets into existence, the author of information, the author of communication, How does he bridge the divide between his perfection and our brokenness? How does he do it? He doesn't just do it by entering history and showing us what God is like in Jesus. He does more than that. He does more than show us the glory and beauty of God. He does more than give us teachings to follow. He actually enters the sin and brokenness and pain of our world by ultimately going to the cross and taking that brokenness upon himself. Now, um, for some of us, if you've ever grown up around church or you're in any way related to a Bible basher, you know, you'll know something about the cross. You'll have seen the image of a cross. But think about it this way. In the ancient world, um, a cartoon was drawn on the walls of Rome depicting how extraordinary uh, the ancient world found this message of the cross to be. And this is what the picture is. It's, it's, a, it's a cartoon scrawled on a wall. And it, the, the picture is of a man's body hanging on a cross, as a familiar image to them, crucifixion was a form of execution. But the man's body, it's a horrible image. It has the head of a donkey. And underneath this grotesque picture is a young man's figure kneeling down and raising his hand in adoration at this horrible image. And underneath that picture is an inscription. And it's a satirical, mocking inscription. And it says, he worships his God. A God who would be shamed, defiled, betrayed, stripped, and killed. Defied all the categories of the ancient world. Where deities demanded things of people and required moral hoop jumping. Do this, do that, perform this ritual. Make yourself right and do things for me. 
And here at the heart of the Christian faith is God on a cross dying in shame and agony, betrayed. Why? For love of us, identifying with our fear, our flaws, our brokenness, and taking those things upon himself, offering us forgiveness, offering us his perfection, not just diagnosing our situation, but meeting us in our pain. And so Jesus asks, what do you want? He asks humanity, what do you want? And he promises in answer to that question, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I'm the one who answers that ache in you. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will never drive away. Anyone who comes to Jesus, anyone who receives his forgiveness, his gift of himself, can have that bread of life and that promise that you will never be hungry or thirsty in that deepest sense again. And that's an offer open to every single person here this morning. And the great news is, is that Jesus is just a prayer away from every single one of us. So we're going to ask him right now to come and answer that prayer, to come and be the bread of life for those who hunger for him today. So why don't we close our eyes? I'm going to pray. And if you'd like to join me in, um, in praying that prayer, why don't you just echo it in your heart? Lord Jesus, thank you that you, the Logos, entered this world. Thank you that you did that for love of me. Thank you that you acknowledge my emptiness and my flaws and you don't require me to pretend to be other, but that you meet me as I am. Thank you for going to the cross for me. And today I recognize my hunger, my brokenness, my need of you. And I ask for your forgiveness and I ask for that bread of life, that gift of yourself to me, that beginning of a relationship. Would you forgive me? Would you restore me? Would you give me that new birth that you promise and that bread of life? Would you fill me with your spirit that I could follow you all the days of my life? Why don't we just stand for a moment? I just also would like to pray for um, anyone who has maybe been a Christian for a long time and fear is actually something that you still struggle with. Um, and to pray that the Lord Jesus, who promises that powerful peace, that he would meet you today. So let's just close our eyes. And if that's you, why don't you just raise a hand so that he can see you. And I'm going to pray over us. That, that, that Jesus, who is the bread of life, the one who went to the cross for us, who promises his people his peace, that he would give us that gift today. So, Lord Jesus, we welcome you here by your spirit. And I pray right now for every believer, every person reaching out to you right now, acknowledging our fear, acknowledging our struggles with anxiety. We pray that you, the Prince of Peace, would walk among us, that you would move among us, 
that you would deposit your peace in our hearts by the power of your Spirit, that you would remove and shift that fear and anxiety we struggle with and that we might receive that gift of your peace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.